voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Il dit à nos voyageurs, embrassez-vous. Well, welcome back uh, to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Currently, we're looking at the works of Jack London, and we've finished all his books that I'm going to look at in this podcast. We, we looked at John Barleycorn and The Road and The Iron Heel and Martin Eden and The People of the Abyss. We've looked at Call of the Wild, White Fang, and The Sea Wolf. So we've looked at all these novels, and all that's really left is to start to look at some of Jack London's most famous stories, which are actually his short stories. Um, we're going to look at these kind of in two groups. It's going to be over four episodes, but we're going to look at them kind of in two groups because that's how they're arranged in the Library of America and uh, Library of America edition of his of his collected works. So we have first twelve of the Klondike Tales. These were originally published between 1899 and 1908 in various magazines. You can find a lot of these in Son of Wolf, which is a collection of his stories. And there's other, of course, Jack London short story collections. So we're going to deal with those first, uh, th those tales. And then we have a bunch of other short stories he wrote, many of them dealing with the Pacific and um, San Francisco and working class life life there. And this will kind of allow us to put some closure on, on Jack London's career and some of his themes um, by looking at his, his short fiction. So we're just going to take a, take a look at six six tales for now, six of the Klondike tales. They're all really good. I think some of these aren't really read that much these days. Certainly Batard probably is read. Um, to Build a Fire is. But some of these are really quite epic and, and really great tales that I, I urge you to, to check out. Um, there's a lot of fun, I think. And yeah, sometimes they have bleak themes and they're often about death and suffering and just how miserable life was in the Klondike but there's a lot of really neat characters and I think Jack London was really fascinated by this this gold miner this American who goes to the frontier or even some of the local Indian um, that they run into the Eskimos and the Aleutians and all these different characters that are just in this very international almost global space in the Yukon in the end of the 19th and early 20th century. So there's a lot of fascinating material for him to draw from, and he does in his, these stories. So, so let's get into these. Um, the first one is To the Man on the Trail. Um, this is one of his first, it seems, uh, at least of the first of the Klondike tale. Now, I don't know how many others there are besides these 12. These are just a sampling of it. I know there, there's, a, there's more, but this one is, is 1899. And we, it, we're just to a character that shows up a lot in some of these Yukon stories, Milmoot Kid. Milmoot Kid is a local uh, can Canadian, and he's a guide. And the guide character comes up a lot. Some of them are, are Indians. Um, Milmoot Kid, I, I really couldn't identify his racial background. For some reason, I was thinking he might have been biracial, but I, I really don't know for sure on that. And often in these tales, he's an observer. So he's telling stories or giving some background about characters and, and some pretty much every time we meet him here he's mostly there as an observer or as a guide for other characters so the action is always somewhere else but he's he's kind of a steady observer in many of these tales so he's 
he's a plot device for 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 Jack London, but he also has a character of his own. He's very realistic and very in many ways he he's probably has an attitude about the frontier, much like Jack London himself. Um, and despite his name, he's he's not really young. He's not like a neophyte. He's a really experienced person up here, and um, he's he's one of a handful of characters who who have this guide role, this role of being the wisest, most knowledgeable people in the frontier, often looking with a bit of despair at the people who come up to the Yukon trying to get rich quick and they're really completely unprepared for what they're facing. So the summary of this tale, it's, it's basically set in in kind of one of these camps or like a lodge out there in the Yukon and they're just hanging around drinking and, and making food and stuff and Milmood kids with some other others there. Now this man comes in. This man turns out to be a guy named Jack Wessendale and he just wants to stay overnight and he says he's He's chasing some dog, someone who stole his his dogs, um, which apparently was a common thing. And they're like, okay. And he just says he wants to sleep for a couple hours and then get going. And they ask questions back and forth. They talk about their families, and there's a lot of sentiment about their family. And then he leaves. And in the morning, or after he wakes up, Milmo Kid has already prepared his sled for him and given him some food and dog food and gives him advice on how to get away. And the guy's like, well, how'd you know? And it turns out that this guy's actually running from the law. And he flees. The law comes just like uh, like minutes later almost. And he's the Canadian, local Canadian police. And he says, well, we got to get this guy. He's run off with a bunch of money and he's a criminal. And Milmo Kid takes the leadership of not giving any aid and comfort to the police. They even He even at one point say, like, we're going to commandeer your dogs and... Milmood Kid sort of looks at his gun and it's like, you're not going to take our dogs even if you pay for them. So then the police have to run off with just like his two dogs and and chase him down. And when this happens, the rest of the people in the camp are pretty upset with Milmood Kid because he seemed to lie to them. And then, then he proceeds to tell the real story about this character, John Wessendale. And it turns out that he's actually a, a straight up guy who struck it rich finding gold he had like forty thousand dollars but he gave it to someone to invest and that guy just stole it and gambled it away and then he this character actually went back to that very same gambling den stole the forty thousand back only the forty thousand and then ran off so he could get back with his his family so a big theme here is is of course crime and justice in the frontier and kind of a more popular vernacular justice uh, represented by the decisions of the male mood kid but we also have a lot here about family and memory and the desire of these people to get back with something this deep desire to just have you know to be able to you know come back and sort of retire that that's what they want to go for and they're willing to suffer and even risk their lives for that dream of just having that amount of money that they can come back and sort of retire so it's a sentiment i can really appreciate at this point in my life we also get a lot here about the camaraderie of the men at the camp and almost the first whole half of the of the story is about you know these people just hanging out telling stories sharing memories about their their family so it's it's a nice little tale it's got a nice twist at the end and if you like stories about people turning their backs on not helping the police this, this is a good tale for you to to look at the next story we have is The White Silence. This was also published in 18, 1899. So it's around the same time that The Man on the Trail came out. This one's much more famous though. In fact, it's one of the few stories by Jack London that has its own 
Wikipedia entry. So we have here three characters. We have Malmut Kid again. This time he's not just hanging out at a camp. He's actually a, a, a guide helping these people. We have Ruth, an Indian woman, who's quite silent throughout much of the story. And we have Mason, who's a white man. And they're in, hard, they're in a hard position. The dogs are dying. They're really desperate. It's not really clear how they're going to survive. And during this journey, as they're trying to get to a camp or, you know, some kind of base that they can recover and, and get their act back together, you know, dogs are dying. So it's really desperate for them. During this, Mason is horribly injured. Like his bones are broken. His back is broken. And they basically have to stop. And the decision comes before them that to survive, they're going to have to leave Mason behind. And that's ultimately the very stoic decision that, that Ruth goes along with. And, and then finally he dies and Ruth and the male mood kid go on without him. The focus on the story is the theme of this white silence. And remember that Jack London uses this term white in John Barleycorn a lot to refer to the white logic. This is a much earlier use of it. And then I'm also reminded of Melville, who sees whiteness not as a positive, pure image, but as something kind of evil and remorseless. And, and uh, dark's the wrong term, but kind of an indifference to, to life, right? Moby Dick, the white whale, is, is white. And the color of white, and you got white jacket, too, another Melville story, in which whiteness is presented not as a positive color. And of course, in the Yukon, you have the whiteness being just the, the, the whiteness of the landscape, the whiteness of winter, the brutality of, of that, that reality that you're, it's just you and nature and nature's probably going to win if you're not really, really careful. And we actually have some commentary on this quote, leaving the girl crying over her man, Milmoot kid slipped into his park in snowshoes, tucked his rifle under his arm and crept away into the forest. He was no Tyro in the stern sorrows of the Northland, but he never faced so stiff a problem as this. In the abstract, it was a plain mathematical proposition. Three possible lives against one doomed one. And now he hesitated. For five years, shoulder to shoulder on the rivers and trails, in the camps and mines, facing death by field and flood and famine, they had knitted their bonds of comradeship. So close was the tie, they had often been conscious of a vague jealousy of Ruth from the first time he had come between them. And now it must all be severed by his own hand. And then later on, it was not pleasant to be alone with painful thoughts in the white silence. The silence of gloom is merciful, shrouding one with protection and breathing a thousand intangible sympathies. But the bright white silence, clear and cold under steely skies, is pitiless. An hour passed, two hours, but the man, man would not die. At high noon, the sun, without raising its rim above the southern horizon, threw a suggestion of fire athwart the heavens and quickly drew it back. Milmoot Kid roused and dragged himself to his comrade's side. He cast one glance about him. The white silence seemed to sneer, and the great fear came upon him. There was a sharp report. Mason swung into his aerial sepulchre. Mamelu Kid lashed the dogs into a wild gallop as he fled across the snow. End quote. That's the very end of the story, actually. And the moment of his death, and then he uses a semicolon here, actually, Jack London. So he doesn't even get onto the next full sentence before immediately Milmood Kid is on his way. So it's the symbolism there is just immediately having to turn his back on the body of, of his friend. Um, next, 
In a Far Country, also published in 1899. This one is more about the dangers of turning your back on civilization, I think. We're reminded of that a lot. In fact, early in the story, that's what Jack London tells us. Quote, the man who turns his back upon the comforts of an elder civilization to face the savage youth, the primordial simplicity of the North, may estimate success at an inverse ratio to the quantity and quality of his hopelessly fixed habits. He will soon discover, if he be a fit candidate, that the material habits are less important. The exchange of such things as a dainty menu for rough fare or a stiff leather shoe for a soft, shapeless moccasin of a feather bed for a couch in the snow is all a very easy matter. But his pinch will come in learning properly to shape his mind's attitude towards all things, especially towards his fellow man. So that's what the story is about um, and how this environment affects the relationship between men. We've seen in the last story, in the white silence, how love and friendship, you know, has to be turned, you know, abandoned in the face of of the risk of death. Here, it's a slightly different variant on that theme. We see here the Yukon bringing in a diversity of people, and basically they're they're kind of out on a boat, I think, and then they they send two out into the into the wild, kind of as scouts. And ahead of them, we have two people. We have Carter, Weatherby, and Percy. These are the two characters who go out into the into the wild. And they actually come to an old cabin, and they decide to stay there. And just out of nowhere, Percy kills Carter. And it's not even clear to me what motivates Percy to do this act of murder. It seems at one point that it might be almost hunger, but it doesn't seem he's really eating him. It's not like cannibalism. They're not that desperate shape, it seems. Quote, it was the same old crowd upon the streets. Strange they did not notice his moonshine moccasins and tattered German socks. He would take his cab, and after a bath and shave would not be bad. No, he would eat first. Steak and potatoes and green things. How fresh it all was. And what was it? Squares of honey, streaming amber liquid. And why did they bring so much? Ha ha, he could never eat it all. Shine, why certainly upon him... Well, why certainly he put his foot on the box, the boot black looked curiously at him, and he remembered his moonshine moccasins, and he went away hastily. End quote. Actually, it, it's kind of madness. He, he's gone just nutty. He thinks he's in the city and doesn't really know where he's at anymore. And so he sort of lost his mind out in the wild, and as a result of that, he kills his, his companion. It's just another way that the, the wild affects these characters in, in negative ways. Next, we have The Wisdom of the Trail, published in 1900. And here we have a, an Indian character, Sitka, Sitka Charlie. And he's basically leading a, a group. There's a couple Indians in the group, and there's some whites. And he's very much enamored with this woman in this group, who's a very strong woman. She motivates him. She's like the wife of, of this group that he's, he's leading. This and We see here in this story how much white society is affecting the Indians of the Yukon and the different Eskimo groups up there. He, this character, Sitka Charlie, is very much enamored by white culture, not just white women, but white culture. And he's, um, quote, being an alien, he knew what he knew it better than a white. He, quote, sorry. Sorry, that's that's the, the wrong quote. It just says here that Sitka Charlie from boyhood had been constantly interacting with various white men. And so he kind of grew up really respecting them and appreciating them. 
And we see a big part of that is his fondness for white women. And he especially likes this white woman because she's very strong and she motivates him throughout the story. And it's a very small tale. It's simply about this group, like other characters in these stories, so far getting into hard times, getting into desperate situations where where there, there's not enough food, not enough chance of survival, not everyone is going to make it, and choices have to be made about who's going to die, who's going to be left behind, are people going to be sacrificed. There's, And then this is conflicted with kind of the law, which he insists. There's there's a kind of a law of, of a kind of a moral law and a law of nature, and they both have meaning here. The law of nature is that not everyone's going to necessarily make it, but there's also kind of a moral law in which people shouldn't necessarily be left behind. And he scolds some of the Indian guides he's with for abandoning a white man who was basically unable to care for himself. And they they move ahead and he's like, well, where's that guy, Joe, or whatever that you left behind? And they have to go back and get him. So this tension between this this morality and this idea that every life matters is contrasted with the reality of life life on the trail and that that's essentially the wisdom of the trail one thing i noticed in this tale and we see it certainly in to build a fire and and a few others is this focus on the feet this you know every the suffering that people feel you you feel it as a reader the suffering in the feet the wet feet the the necessity to dry them the fact that they have to care for their feet constantly and we see characters with their toes falling off all this is really richly described and the characters here are kind of really obsessed with their feet and their toes and the cold and it's really effective way of making you sympathize with the plight that these characters are are in okay next we have an odyssey of the north this was published in originally in 1900 and this is a really long tale it's almost a novella in many ways it actually has chapters it's like in three parts it's it's a much longer tale than, for instance, the wisdom of the trail, dealing with this question of the impact of the whites on the Yukon. And based on the title, you, you're being told by Jack London right away that this is a kind of retelling of the story of, of the Odyssey. I'm not going to give you a play-by-play -play of the story, but we start out with the with Mood Kid again, and he's again putting on the role kind of an observer and a storyteller. And he's mostly just a listener here, but he starts out telling a story about this guy called Ulysses. You know, this guy who's been kind of traveling around, you know, and that's why he gets this name Ulysses. He's also called sometimes like the man of the otter skins. So he has a couple names here. Um, and then he comes in and stays with them and he's with this other man. He's with this this white man and, he, and, there's, and a woman who's apparently the white man's wife. And they eventually leave and then this guy of the otter skins this ulysses comes back into the tent having killed the woman and and the white man or leaving them to die or some mixture of that and then he begins to tell the story and most of the story then and like i'm saying this is like 40 pages in the library of america version it's really a substantial uh, almost a novella, but he goes in and gives this long description of his past. And he talks about how he was a chief. He was an Aleutian Islander, and he's kind of the last of his kind, last of his of, of his race. He himself is a mixed race person. Um, and he just goes into this long story about how he was going to marry this woman, Unga. He's the, she's the woman that he was that he killed. 
and then how she's taken by a white man and kind of brought to civilization and then he goes on this long quest to track her down so it's very much like homer and the odyssey this this trying to return to your family to your wife um and he calls on all these different weird not really weird but all these different adventures he works on a ship for a while he goes to cities he kind of is all over the world i think he's even in europe for a while it's really he in a impressive journey for this this character and he tells it all in pretty stunning um, detail and then finally he returns to to here with them and finds them and and kills them why well because unga the woman refuses to leave gunderson the white man that she's with so we have kind of a pocahontas uh, nature to the story too in which we have the indian woman accepting the love of the white man over her own people there's there's actually a lot to say about this story i'm not going to do a whole episode on this but i probably could um, we see here for instance a lot on ecology and how the presence of the whites has shaped the ecology of of these societies um, and here's what Ulysses says, what was his earlier name? Nas, I think. Nas or Nase. But let's just call him Ulysses. He says this, but the sea was no longer fruitful and those who went upon it after the seal went to little profit and great risk. The fleet scattered and the captains and the men had no word of those I sought. So I turned away from the ocean, which never rests and went among the lands where the trees, the houses and the mountains sit in one place and do not move. I journeyed far and came to learn many things, even to the way of reading and writing from books. End quote. So we see here that actually the, the seals have been overhunted to such a degree that they're starting to, to die out. And it's something that Jack London knew, knew about quite well. He spent time as a seal hunter and he wrote a whole novel about sealing, which also gets into this ecological narrative of the depopulation of, of the seals. Now at the end of the tale, Male Mood Kid's companions kind of like, you know, we're going to let this guy get away. He just kind of sort of confessed to murder. And Male Mood Kid says, well, you really can't mess with, with, um, you can't really mess with the, the law of nature, he says. There be things greater than our wisdom, beyond our justice. The right and the wrong of this we cannot say, and it is not for us to judge. And so then the, the story ends with the three of them just around the fire. And I don't know if Nas, Ulysses has more stories to tell, but that's all that London gives us in this tale. The last one I'll look at today is the law of life. The Law of Life was published in 1901. So all of these six tales I've looked at were published within uh, three years of each other. Here we have, this is the story of old Kakush, who is an Eskimo. He's a tribal leader and he's being sent out to the woods. They're building a, he's building a fire and he's going to die out here. He's too old to be of any use to the community more so he's just going to die around his fire and he actually thinks he's quite lucky because he can die with his family and his loved ones and have this nice fire not everyone has that luck so he, he says all his goodbyes to his loved ones and the other people of the tribe and they leave and so it's just him and the fire so we got this tribal ritual but it's once it's done he's it's just him around the fire and he starts to think about his past and he thinks about his times on the hunt and the different experiences he had and he mostly though thinks about a moose a moose that was left behind by the herd 
and then killed by a pack of wolves. Right? And if you ever watch, go on YouTube. I've been doing this a lot lately, actually, because I've been reading these wolf tales by London. Go on there and you can actually see how the wolves hunt. And they'll often do this. They'll pick out like the weakest member, a child or an old one or an injured one and, and eat him and let the rest of the herd get away. So it's almost like someone who's not useful anymore to their herd or is holding the herd back gets sacrificed. That's the lesson. And that's, that's the story. It's called the law of life. And that's part of it is that the old must die and de death is the price you pay for life. So he thinks about this tale and now he uses up all the wood that's been prepared for him. And, you know, the fire is dying. And, you know, once the fire is down, he's going to have to face the cold and the brutal cold and, and probably die. So at that time, as the fire dies, he starts to hear the sound of the wolves around him. And he thinks about fighting against the wolves. Um, but he doesn't. He simply allows the wolves to presumably eat him. So the story ends with his impending death at the hands of this pack of wolves. Now, this is not the only time Jack London has talked about wolves eating humans. And it's something I wanted to just mention. I've recently read this book by a historian. Um, what's his name? Okay, this historian, John Coleman, he wrote this book, Vicious, Wolves and Men in America. Now, I don't know who's right here, but Coleman makes the claim that there's no documented cases in North America of wolves eating humans unless they were rabid. I mean, there are examples of, of dogs with rabies doing that, but there's no examples of non-rabid dogs doing it. And, you know, I don't know one way or another. I, I, I guess it's true. I didn't actually even follow his footnotes, but... That's what it said. Now, this is an overall a very wonderful book, a really good book. And the author knows a lot about the biology and the society of, of wolves and their interaction with humans and the you know how policy and farming and agriculture and folklore all shaped this war against wolves. Now, as we've seen with Jack London several examples of wolves attacking and eating humans. Uh, in the opening pages of White Fang, you have desperate, hungry wolves attacking humans eating the dogs first and then finally attacking one of the human beings. And then we have it mentioned here that the wolves are attacking us. Now, I don't know if wolves desperate enough, hungry enough would do that. And just because it hasn't been documented doesn't mean it hasn't happened. So, but I just want to throw that out there as something I'm not quite sure about. Maybe Jack London is perpetuating certain mythologies about wolves that aren't fully true. But if, if you do know about this, please, um, share and uh, i'd love to hear your opinion if you're a specialist in this and know more about it than, than i do so i guess that does it uh it's kind of a short episode i'm sorry i guess i zipped through some of these stories i, I actually didn't type up my notes as i normally do here I, I have handwritten notes and that tends to make things a little bit shorter when i do that but i was just just reading these in a convenience store and and jotting down some notes by hand so anyways, thanks so much for listening. I, I think these are great tales to, to visit. Don't just read to build a fire. I think read, reading these as a group is a really good idea because there's a lot of interesting stories there. Of course, I love everything that Jack London um, writes, but uh, these were, are just a lot of fun. And I love the characters. That's the greatest thing about these stories is, is these characters. Sometimes the stories are kind of slight, but we meet these really fascinating people. that, And we kind of hope that Jack London had met these people as well in his journeys and adventures that he had throughout his life. So that does it. I will uh, see you shortly. Um, in, in the next episode, we'll look at another six of the Klondike tales, including 
to build a fire, which you probably already all read, but also Badard and a few other that are fairly well known. So, uh, thank you so much for listening. Il y en avait un autre parmi eux qui a passé pour un quiqueux. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Glendike.